Dash Shop Maniacs. You're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Show. This is kind of a shorty episode. I'm Dave Rupert, and with me is Chris Coyer. Hey, Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing darn fine here. I was supposed to dump snow on us uh, last night, and it didn't, so I'm kind of grateful for it, because I can't get my snowblower started. Every year, there's like a learning curve, you know, and then you get it and you think, oh, I got it. You know, Oof. now I'm I've solved my snowblower. I've had the thing four years mm-hmm. and, and then and then I and then I take it out of storage and it doesn't start. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that learning curve that I conquered the last three years has now disappeared. And now I don't know how to do it. I don't know what the technological metaphor there is, but, you know, you step away from web development for nine months and can't come back. You're probably going to be a little rusty. Oh, man. The commands you typed yesterday don't work today. I had that this week. I I upgraded NPM update this, like, uh, Prisma. I'm using Prisma ORM adapter. Went from version 2.30 to version 3.6, you know, all the new. I'm doing good. Dude, fired up. Works on my local machine. Beautiful, beautiful, yeah. lovely, just magnificent. That is beautiful. But then, it, the deploy failed, and it didn't update, and I didn't know what was going on. And so I, it just like everything broke, and <laughs> I don't know why, you know. And then um, I, so I then spun up my local host. Guess what? The local host I was using five minutes before that was now also broke, like. I guess I had to like restart my uh, dev server and I didn't do that appropriately or whatever. So anyway, it was all broke. And so I had to revert. And then of course I'm like breaking stuff while I revert, but whatever I revert it all and then I get it up and guess what? It still didn't work because the backend server uses a different version of Prisma. And so like I had to update that. And so, and I think stuff's still broken. So, and I don't yeah, know. That's I just sneezed. one dependency. Yeah. I sneezed. You, uh, Amazon had an outage. Now stuff doesn't work. I don't know. It's so weird. So fragile. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to fix it. I'm working really hard, but it's yeah. just how do you do it? I don't know. So, Docker, I guess such things never change. I don't know though. I mean, Docker's just constantly. It's like <laughs> just okay, as I'll fragile. Docker, and then it's like, but uh, my issue, I think, with Docker is I don't feel confident. Like the uh, like when I'm typing the commands, I find the commands on the internet and I paste them into the machine and they, but it just, I don't know. I, I don't have the muscle memory or the confidence with Docker. I need to build it up and, and it's coming, but it's just like, man, I don't, I'm not there yet. You know? Yeah, that's true. I did read a, an article from the NYC studio fella about the, uh, um, about how you do, like that's I don't know I was in between thoughts on it in that I think his point was that you don't have to fully understand Docker and which to benefit from it much like okay. you don't have to understand every single piece of technology that you use in which to benefit from it but it's true that you can't use it at all unless mm-hmm. you like know you know CLI stuff and can fuddle your way through a Docker file and stuff so if even that is complicated to you and I'm sure you know more than I do I don't I've never made a Docker file. I just I just benefit from other people's <laughs> instructions, you know. So when I said confidently, just use Docker, I'm not I'm not telling you that from a position of deep understanding. Well, it's you know, it's you know, it's it's all makes sense. There's but the, the weird thing about Docker is there's a Docker file and a Docker compose, and then a Docker ignore. Like, don't do this stuff with these files. That that all makes sense. 
but the 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 <laughs> the Docker file is I'm gonna mess this up, but I, I think this is kind of like get this server and then run these commands. That's how I understand it, right? And then the Docker compose is like okay, it, when you get this server, put these things on it. You know, like put a put a little Postgres on there, put a, you know, stuff like that. So they're like, that's how you kind of like add the features to it, you know? So, uh, or services, you might call them. Uh, that's what they call them exactly. But eh, <laughs> services and volumes. But anyway, it's, it's like a lot to get your head wrapped around. And then like when you run NPM, you have to do it in the Docker or you should. And so, so that the Docker actually gets the updates. And so I'm not sure, you know, they can be really short lived, you know, a Lambda can be a Docker, meaning that one request can be Dockerized, meaning that there's a little bit of overhead for Docker, but you don't have to think of it as this thing that you spin up and then just leave sitting there running and use for hours or days. Mm -hmm. It can be running for, 15 on milliseconds yeah right right yeah no yeah uh you know elad Schechter. he was i had a blog post from him a couple months ago on using a new css reset of course everybody to i think people look at how basically famous eric meyer got for his and uh and then and then think well that was so long ago surely eric meyer's reset is is old and mm-hmm. needs to be rethought, you know. Right, right. And and, and and whatever. And maybe it does, you know. So Elad has his. And then I just saw the other day that Josh, uh, what, Komao, you know, Josh W. Oh, is, yeah. We're blogging the MDX blog that I'm always jealous of. He's, and he's got this big new CSS course, whatever. Everybody loves Josh. He's got a new CSS reset as well. So I'm curious, like, <laughs> is something in the water with CSS resets? I find myself, like, fascinated by them and want to look through them and see what the selectors are and see what what they're doing to reset things just out of general interest in CSS but not I don't come at from a strong desire of like man I can't wait to use that whole hog or mm-hmm. like replace what I normally start projects with which is usually nothing <laughs> you know mm-hmm. I might mm-hmm. I do the box sizing thing box sizing border box on the star selector I'll even go so far as the really fancy one where you set it on the pseudo elements too and then you even inherit it and you know I'm not going to mouth blog that but I'm sure some people know what I'm talking about I like that one that one's pretty important to me although less and less with grid and flex box I feel like you don't need border border box so much in that mm-hmm. world, because you're you're setting like direct widths less, I feel like, and stuff. You're just using those fractional units or just flexing stuff, and then it doesn't kind of matter. So even that, I'm a little not so hot on. And then the rest of it is kind of like I don't know, just leave it alone. I just I just kind of find myself just not caring about CSS resets. And if I'm on a big project, that stuff is so in there already anyway, and I cannot you're not going to take a 10 year old project and put a new CSS reset in it. Like, why would you sign yourself up for that pain? It's just yeah. not, you know? Yeah. Cause everything's kind of, uh, I mean, for better, or for worse, like whether it's normalized or something, you know, everything's kind of hanging off of that original reset, you know? Yeah. You replace it. There's going to be edge cases. You're going to be sad. But anyway, that's not, that, it's just to say where I'm coming at with resets. Yeah. Well, I was, it was funny. I was like trying to, I had this weird block quote style and I was like trying to fix it. And I was like, what is going on? 
I'm like in the reset and I'm like, it's getting reset. And then mm-hmm. I look, the reset file was never being imported. <laughs> so, so I had a reset file that wasn't ever being used. And, uh, and that was, and so I just was like, oh, we're not even using a reset. This is kind of novel. What what a weird, weird world. But you can also not use a reset, you know? Like, I think, too, browsers are getting a little bit better and a little bit, like, you know, I don't know, smarter at their... I've uh, seen it hurt people, too. The, uh, uh, the boy, I think it was the Discord or something the other day. Somebody's like, why on earth is there my search input? It doesn't have one of those little X's in it to, to X out the search term. Mm-hmm. It was inexplicably weird, but in CodePen, they just had the normalize button checked, which tosses a copy of normalize on the file. You know, that used to be highly desirable, maybe less so now, but hey, we still have the feature in, in normalize, which is mm-hmm. in the bucket of CSS resets, even though I realize there's a distinction there. Um, it just nukes that. It just it goes to all odds to remove the X, which Mm -hmm. I hate. Why would you do that? The X is like the only reason you would use a search input. It's great. (laughs) It's a nice feature. (laughs) That's a nice feature. You know, yeah. What's weird though is they changed it and now it's all like multicolor. It's like blue. It has a bluish tinge to it. It's not just black. It's weird. Anyway, Mm. I don't know if accent color fixes it or something either. It's like this weird like in in Chrome or Safari or Firefox? In Chrome, I'm in Chrome. Yeah, it's this weird like glyph, and I'm like, dude, can I fix that or change that? So <laughs> I would like. Yeah, to. so maybe you would want to remove it. Okay, so yeah, so, so I, I just feel like their their days of helpfulness are are a little limited. Although that's probably not true. A big a big beefy project, you should probably chuck it on there. Sure, you get the you know the nice foundation across browsers, and I get it. That's all good. So in Elads, the big interesting one was that he leaned on all unset all colon unset all the css property on almost everything but not everything in in his in this interview i did with him he explains why there's a couple of things that you kind of want uh, some of the default properties on so he scopes it you know and then rocks the all unset and then goes display revert which is interesting too is all will nuke pretty much everything off of everything except for the you don't really want that on the display property so the display he kicks back to normal you'd think there'd be other properties that you'd want to revert but it turns out not really which makes this actually kind of a clever reset i think then he has some opinionated stuff in there he goes like image max width 100 percent. yeah yes actually yes that is in every one of my style sheets but that's in, in opinionated territory now it's like that's not a problem across browsers or anything. You know, that's just kind of like a now you're venturing into it's not just a reset. It's like my little opinionated selection of things that I think should be on all other projects. And if that's the case, I got a whole bunch of them. You know, <laughs> there's a little typography stuff I like to do. And I, I can't even remember the whole list, but I bet I have 20 little things I like to do across mm-hmm. projects that are pretty consistent, you know. So to to put it in a in a reset that is intended for the whole world to use, I find that a difficult choice, you know. Do you want all 20 of my opinions or are we scoping this thing to just things that are problematic across browsers or or whatever? That's why I was I thought the reset was interesting because it was intentionally tr- like Eric Myers like intentionally trying to rip off all styling forcefully. Mm-hmm. And Normalize took that other approach like, no, the it, it does not belong in the style sheet unless there is a difference across browsers. And then we're going to 
normalize that difference. But if it's just an opinion, it doesn't belong in the style sheet, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, I th which I thought was clever. Anyway, then on to Josh's and Josh's is, is interesting too. It has, you know, it digs into the, the box, the box sizing thing, but doesn't use the inheritance model notably. Mm -hmm. uh, and then has some opinions about typography. It goes for WebKit font smoothing and stuff. That's in that kind of opinionated territory of, do you like that? Are you, do you literally for sure want that on every single project? I don't, uh, but you know, fair enough. Yeah. That one seems, I'm surprised we still need that, but I I guess we do. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have seen it, you know, and certain typography situations really do make it better, but, and sometimes worse. That's why I don't globally do it. Mm -hmm. And then it rocks the overflow wrap on typography elements, but just some, you mm -hmm. know, like just headers and P's, but not LIs and not I would DDs. Put it on and LIs not... and DDs for sure. LIs, DDDT. Yeah. Yeah. And there's even more like block quote and, Mm -hmm. Pre and uh, probably not Anywhere pre. Anywhere somebody could accidentally paste a URL, basically, right? So. Right, and in that case, like, why not star? I guess or we I had a situation where somebody was like, they typed like a client was like, it's oh point oh oh one percent, you know, trying to like drive a point like it's not even a or like maybe they're like. It might have been like it was a billion percent or something. So they just typed one zero 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 percent, and it was Busted causing out. this huge overflow <laughs> issue. Yep. And yep. we like, I was just like, why did they type this? But they did. And so like, anywhere a user can type content, you kind of need this, you know, because it, it just uh, you don't know, you don't know till it's too late. Or right, right, right. And if you just do overflow hidden, that will some usually fix it too although not always because it depends on the like if, if the thing is a flex box situation it might turn its inherent size mm -hmm. too too wide and break layout that way too so overflow isn't going to always help you but overflow also is data loss then it can hide content in a way that you don't want it to so tricky so, yeah overflow wrap is good it's also um there's more properties than just overflow wrap you know there's mm -hmm. a couple of other ones you might want to look at the browser support of that and and figure it out it's just not to like dig into josh's it's actually pretty clever it's got some got some cool stuff in it uh but it's all these things are so opinionated it is well here's the opinion so the second rule he has is star margin zero yeah nuking margin baller lot, what are your thoughts what do you think i used to do that all the time in fact that's where the logo for css tricks came from that star is all, i used to start all my demos and projects with star just like josh is here margin zero and padding zero and i did padding because lists often have padding instead of margin mm -hmm. to kick to mm -hmm. kick them in so I, I kicked the padding too it was just a it was just it was kind of nuclear you know i don't hate that's it intense. you know i actually i i'm I kind of am coming around to it. You know what I don't like? I I don't like that paragraphs and headings have all this margin on top, like on by top. default. I hate the top margin thing. Ooh, like, yeah. What up, dude? You make a card <laughs> and you throw an H2 in it and, and it's pushed down weird from the top because of the weird top margin on it. Now, I'm not anti-top margin all the time forever. I just think sure, it's sure, so sure. Weird, for a, weird, weird for a default, maybe. Yeah, why do we do top? Why? We just, why? That was a... 
bold yeah. choice. And sometimes you don't really notice because of margin collapsing, you know, that the if there's a header after a P, they kind of suck into each other as well. But you, I, I bet the header, the top margin on the header is a little bit more than the bottom margin on a on a P. And it, it, uh, notice we're we're still we're saying old words still. I should almost be saying the block margin, the block margin, the and block the... end margin, and the block start margin. That's the thing. Like when the two blocks kiss or whatever, you know, I don't know. Like my age old problem. And I've probably said a thousand times on the show is like, you have the heading, right. And then you have the paragraph and you're like, yes, perfect. I did it. And then somebody sneaks along the sec next issue. Once you commit that code, somebody posts, we also need a subtitle next to the heading and they need to touch, you know? And so like, now you have to, yeah. so you're just like, turds and burgers (laughs) classic yeah so you're just like you can't you can't friggin win so everyone changes their mind no and i don't i'm not even as much as i'm a fan of like using css features and just like rock and roll i i i almost see why something like tailwind has a benefit there and that you know the only margin it has is the margin you gave it from the class rather than being like, oh, all headers have a bottom margin, except when it's H1 plus dot subtitle, and then it has a, then it's different, or I use negative margin to suck it back up, or those kind of conditional things that have, it's a little bit of misdirection that I don't like. I'm not necessarily advocating utility styles because generally I actually don't like them, but that doesn't, headers are especially annoying in that way. Sometimes they have subtitles and sometimes they don't, and sometimes they're in a card and sometimes they don't, and sometimes, yeah, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Automatic. I'm so grateful to have Automatic as a sponsor of this show and other things that I've worked on over the years because it's a company that I believe in that writes good software and really helps the world do what they do. Automatic's the makers of WordPress.com, of course, host for your WordPress site. It takes just a second to spin up a new website over there, and I don't think you'll regret it. Great place to spin up a WordPress site and scale it for a very long time, if not forever, right on WordPress.com, especially with their kind of somewhat recently launched ability to like add plugins to those sites and get FTP access and get MySQL access to those sites, even though it's hosted right on the WordPress.com cloud. So cool. If you're self-hosting WordPress, of course, they make Jetpack, which brings all kinds of amazing abilities to your self-hosted WordPress site, like a crazy good search tool that offloads search to the cloud, backup tools, and so much more security stuff. Jetpack is just great. Use it on all sites. And if you're going to sell something from a website, whether it's WordPress.com or your self-hosted WordPress site, of course, WooCommerce is the way to go there. Super powerful e-commerce software. I use it myself right on CSS Tricks to sell physical goods as well as digital goods and digital access to. That's all comes from the WooCommerce universe. Just doing great over there. By all accounts, a great year for them. And we're so grateful for the sponsorship. So high five to another year with Automatic. You know, okay, so you did this, this, uh, you did this thing on CSS tricks. This is probably a pretty good segue about like the, what's one thing you can do to your website and in, 
it's kind of an adventist sort to of thing. To make it better, yes. A bunch of people wrote in, what's one thing you can do to your website to make it better? And there's a lot of, lots of really good posts. I've been like thinking of mine, you know? Can I kind of mouth blog mine? Sure. One like, thing you can do to make your website better, Dave Rupert, go. Write your website in a different way. And like, and I think the idea here is like, or maybe it's not your website. Maybe it's some other project, but build it with a different set of tools than you like. So that like, if you hate Tailwind, build it with Tailwind. If you only use Tailwind, build it without Tailwind. Like, Mm. I, I think there needs to be a lot more sort of, or if you hate JavaScript frameworks, build it with a JavaScript framework. If you use only JavaScript frameworks, build it with a, you know, no frameworks, only vanilla. Like, I think like our world, <laughs> our development world, or or even your website could be better if you explore the alternative, like the opposite of you, you know? Um, and there's kind of no huge consequences other than like, Oh, maybe this is a bad website or something, you know, but like if you just like you, you, I think you're going to, I think what would come out of it is more nuanced opinions. I feel like a lot of these blog posts I'm reading specifically this week are just like, that's bad. You're a dummy, you know? And I'm just like, could we just like have a bit more nuance to this? Like, like, you know, I don't like, you said like, I don't like utility classes. Like, Rather than saying I hate Tailwind, just be like, I have not been successful with utility classes. When I tried it on this project, blah, 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 I ran into these problems or felt this need. Like, that's a lot better of a conversation than like, Tailwind is stupid, you know? I, I just, so. Yeah, in a sense, because I think sometimes, you know, stakeholders and your boss and stuff might expect a little bit more of it. You can't roll into a professional meeting and just be like, hate it, bye. You'll be like, that's not a that's like not useful for this meeting, and it's almost like a cause for correction. Be like, are you are you serious about working here? Because if you are, you might need to uh, bring a little bit more to the meeting. Yeah, we need a little bit more nuance. And so, like your website, your website is a really good place to explore nuance. You know, and you know your website, but so maybe it's like cut a branch or cut a you know I don't know just just. Explore writing your own website or some website that you maintain in a totally opposite than you normally do way and just see what that's like. That, that would be my thing. Nice. Um, anyway. That's a really nice gesture, you know? Like if you hate trackers, build a website that's just full of tracking. <laughs> Laura Calbag. <laughs> Jeremy Keith. Yeah. Maybe you guys just need to, uh, well. Or, Have you or, thought about adding more analytics to your like, site? Uh, I mean, with that situation, it's probably like build an e-commerce site with somebody who depends on making money through resales or whatever. And like, how do you how do you make how do you convince somebody like don't make money on retracking or reselling or remarketing or whatever? Like, you have to work with somebody who <laughs> has the opposite opinion. Exactly, and then you'll have the nuance to the to the to the party. Yeah. And it, it did these, you know, um, there was a lot of, of, of posts along 
the side, you know, Laura Kalbags was remove trackers. And she mm-hmm. had really, that was all kinds of great nuance in that. The reason that, she, you know, she started off talking about, she just like was playing with a theme for a blog. And the theme just assumed you'd have a bunch of trackers, tried to help you with those trackers, and just said, oh, just put in your like API key over here and we'll handle the rest kind of thing. Because obviously you're going to want this tracker. So we're going to make it easier for you to do. Yeah. Kind of funny. No, I mean, and that's kind of the sad state we're in is just like all this like, <laughs> like you, it's a lot of things just assume it's going to go the bad way. So. This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by Backlight. That's backlight.dev. If you do design systems work, you are hired to do it at a company or your agency was hired to build a design system, you have to check this out. It's a very impressive piece of technology, totally custom built for building, working on, deploying, shipping design systems. Go, go to their studio and spin up one of the starters. And the starters can be like React and Chakra or Lit and Web Components and Shoelace or Tailwind and Svelte. You know, it's it, all kinds of, it doesn't really care about your technology. It's just trying to help you build the design system. You drop into the studio, it's a three column layout. On the left, you see all of your components and your design tokens and your layouts and all that. Open them up and see the source that is building those things. Uh, And it's a live code editor. So change the code, work on your design system, save it. As you're saving it, you can connect it to a repo. It's pushing changes to the design system, to branches of that repo. And you can change branches and play around and do what you need to do. Get it right. Get approval and then ship the thing. You can even send it all the way to NPM as a tagged version. So this is an end-to-end tool for design systems. The layout is so cool. You're looking at the source, but you're also looking at the storybook stories. You're looking at the documentation, uh, the design examples. You're linking it up to Figma. You're seeing them rendered in the browser. This thing has got it all for design systems. Thanks for the support. Backline, such a cool tool. Check it out. I did a, you know, a publishing all, there's some irony to it because there's Google Analytics is on CSS Tricks, right? Which is a tracker, you know? Mm-hmm. And 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 I even, it's not like I self-host the JavaScript or use server-side analytics. It's literally third-party JavaScript. And then out here I am publishing Jeremy Keith's article that's just like, don't literally don't do it. Treat it like a third-party cookie. Just straight up block it. No third-party JavaScript, you know? I also run a company that if you want to put a code pen embed on your site, we encourage you to put a code pen script on your site, which is third-party JavaScript. So, like, I can't, like, my opinion is different, you know, than than Jeremy's. Uh, and and uh, I think the core is, you know, when, they, when, when people talk about third-party, they're not like the cool iframe from CodePen, a site you trust. Or maybe they are. Maybe they totally are. I think Jeremy would not distinguish. I think he would say, even that, don't do it. Ah, he's a theoretical purist. But uh, <laughs> he wants but the walk, I'll say. He anyway. wants the walk, yeah. But like, you know, I, I think generally people are talking about the the Facebook pixels, which follow me around the internet and try to sell me underwear, you know, on CNN or whatever. Right. Like, that's like, I think those things are like, you know, dirty, they're gross, they're hideous. And like, we should get rid of them. But like, you know, also too, like 
telling this audience of web developers who probably care about performance and are watching their like lighthouse scores just tank due to third party stuff. Right. Like we're maybe not the audience. I don't know. You know, No, I, I definitely think there's lots of nuance there. I don't I'm not I, I was considering it like what, what what could I do to get down to zero third party JavaScript? It would actually be a lot. I'm not saying there's a lot of trackers, but there's little stuff like Cloudflare because it runs through their DNS. I think it slips in a little JavaScript on mobile that does some special mobile stuff. I'd have to watch that um, ads couldn't run them. Because they literally, some of them come from buy sell ads. Now, buy sell ads is so trusted as a third party script that even if you run Adblock Plus, the number one ad blocker in use on the entire internet, you still see buy sell ads ads because they are so trusted in that market. I mean, isn't that crazy? That's like a big distinguish. Yeah. So, like, what does, where does that fit in the argument? I don't hear that nuance. It's like everyone said, like, these ads are like okay enough. Like, do we not just say yes, or are you blocking ads, the buy sell ads on my side and on CSS tricks as well? You know, like is that what? I, that's the nuance that gets me. Anyway, I, I, I'm on I'm on team. Let's not be scummy, but I'm just like, how do you know? And how do you you know? Like, in some ways, it's a moral argument. Uh, like if I could argue on Jeremy's side, he says that people did not agree to it. They didn't say they didn't say it's okay to track that I looked at this ad, and and then I would also but but it, it, the I in that sentence is very important to me because I don't know who looked at that ad I have no idea but I do have aggregate information I do I do know how many thousand people looked at the ad and that is actually vital to our business model mm-hmm. and I actually disagree with knowing if individual people looked at it. And yes. or, or that the data is then used to be fingerprinting data to make a complete profile or something that I would draw the line at, too. And I don't think that's happening. I could be wrong. I, you know, whatever. Google gives away Google Analytics. And that does seem a little suspicious that like that data is not used in some kind of global fingerprinting kind of way. You <laughs> yeah. Know? yeah, we'll take we'll count your page views. Uh, but it yeah. has to be there. You know, there, <laughs> I don't know in Google Analytics anything about any individual user. I don't know if that's if something nefarious happens beyond that. And, and nor do they allow that. It's literally against the terms of service to track identifiable information in Google. Search. That doesn't mean it can't be used in a fingerprinting kind of way, but it does mean that I cannot just look up and see who did what. I have no idea, nor do I want to know line in the sand. But then I go into MailChimp and I I need data for our newsletters because, Mm -hmm. you know, like how many people opened it and stuff. And I go poking around in the analytics in there. It literally tells me exactly who opened it and who clicked on and what they clicked on by like name if it's in there. And I was like, wow, whoops. I didn't even know that was the default, that it was that invasive. So I turn it all off, right? David, just flip it all off. Good, good. Great. Now it's off. Guess what the first thing that happens is the next week. The people that I work with, sponsors, are like, what's the open rate on this one? I can't see who's clicking on stuff, you know, like the, because, you know, you give certain people access to to reports or whatever. I'm talking about buy, sell ads, and they're not, you know, I'm not implicating them in badness or whatever, but there's data that they put in their reports, which are shared with the people. And it's not that Dave clicked on what. It's it's just kind of like, how many, uh, what was the open rate? Literally, that's the metric that mattered. We're going to send out 10,000 of these uh, 
9,000 get opened and 2,000 get clicks or something. Right. That's what and they want. And now we only know how many they got sent to, not the open rate and not the click rate, because I turned all that stuff off, which also turns off any personal identifiable click data or whatever. But immediately I get flack for it, you know? Not like deep flack, because I just said, hey, sorry, you'll never have that data again. I'm going to tell you that it goes out, the CSS Tricks letter goes out to like 98,000 people or something. I will never know who clicked what. I will never know even what percentage of people open it. I have no idea what people click on unless we put a click tracker on the individual link. And I I do allow that as well because it's not personally identifiable. It's just like it got clicked and it increments a number from 37 to 38, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So nuance, a lot of it, but, you know, publishing and reading these articles did get me to change some settings and be a little less tracky tracky. So I'd call it a nudge in that direction, you know? Well, and I I think, yeah, I I think it's good. I I think I'm again, I'm not in disagreement. I think I'm like in agreement. I just then like I smash with like reality or client requests or whatever. And I'm like, how do you like resolve this? You know, so uh, it's tough. But there yeah. were some other good ones, non-privacy related. <laughs> I thought I, I liked uh, Eric Bailey's "Test Your Product on a Crappy Laptop." I thought that was like so good. I mean, it's just like, hey, the like, I like one the, of the title, right? It really gets to the point. Like if if you didn't even read the article, you got the point. <laughs> <laughs> the title. Yeah, and he introduced like this idea of a crap top, which is just a crappy laptop. And the crap top has an old battery. It has, you know, or like my son's Chromebook from school that's already like five years old and he's supposed to have for 10 years. Like you like these crap tops are like underpowered, not very good. And like the fans are humming at like 70,000 RPMs. Like try your website on that. How does it feel? Is it good? If it's okay, if you feel like it's okay and, and you're not just sucked into your own optimism bias, then that's fine. Um, but I thought it was kind of cool. Like, I don't know. His, his whole thing was like, there are 260 work days a year. Uh, that's 260 chances for somebody to be using the crap top like, for a day. So you just pass the crap top around. The crap top has some login credentials and uh, you get to use that today. I thought that was pretty... It also feels like a little more like likely that somebody's going to take them up on that offer and do it. Sometimes it's like, um, I think it's more prevalent that somebody says, well, test on an old phone, which is also doable, but mm-hmm. you kind of like get less data from it too because you don't get the dev tools experience in there. You're not running Lighthouse. It's just a feel, get a feel for it kind of vibe. So, yeah, mm-hmm. eh, you know. Whatever. I know there's tooling around this stuff, too. And then there's, you know, I think there was a Discord conversation lightly about it that was like, sometimes I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum where I have a very nice MacBook. It's not it's not a bad laptop. It's a fine laptop. But I live way out in the country and our Internet often just sucks. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that can be the possible, too, is that that, you know, what what is a what is a crap top with killer Internet versus a very nice laptop with kind of bad Internet? Like, aren't they both kind of interesting scenario? Well, and, and then there's like this whole thing. I don't think he got into it, but there was some posts. It was like on these new brand new MacBook Pros M1 X Max, you know, bitching CPUs, yeah. best CPUs, most magical CPUs we've ever produced here at Apple Cupertino. 
well, the, if you run them on battery, which why would you run a laptop on battery? I don't know. But it'll switch into low power mode, which is like your phone's low power mode, which mm-hmm. basically like cuts your CPU in half so that you could get twice the battery, you know? Right. So like, like I, it's just kind of like, oh, surprise. Like the default of these new devices, these the supercomputer that I have on my desk is is to go into like crap top mode uh, when it's unplugged, you know? Yeah. And interesting. I I read an article. What was it? I think it was John Jing Jacobs. Beep, beep, I think J John J. Jingle. John, John. Oh, I'm sure he's never heard that before. The, uh, that, that it was demonstrable in Safari on a Mac. You pull that power cord and it basically just tells it just says, "Oh, I'm going to run all your request animation frames at 30 FPS instead of 60." 30 FPS, just instantly off on battery. It's just it's like a feature of Safari. You know, it's, it's saying I'm going to conserve power in this way. In that while, like so, like your smooth butter animations that you were working so hard on. Guess what? Even if you're at a hundred percent battery, it's you know. And then Chrome, everyone on the Chrome DevRel team is just like 30 FPS. You loser. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> you can't go. Well, it's weird that it wasn't, it wasn't like, you don't know that it did that. It's like not communicated particularly well, you know? Right, right. And then maybe there's like an icon with like a rabbit that has a tear in his eyeball or whatever, a turtle. <laughs> I don't know. Like, there's, there's like probably some icon trying to communicate like, it's oh not God. as fast, guy, but like, who knows what it means, you know? Yeah. So that was my favorite on the lawnmower we grew up with. There was turtle and rabbit. <laughs> did you have that? Yeah. Lawnmower? Oh yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it, it did the job. Did it not? No. Yeah, yeah, knows. yeah. Turtle and rabbit. And, I don't know. You that was one of the turn, first like... things Ruby learned. Turtle is slow. Really? And rabbit. Yeah, I mean, fast? she just, she just knows that intuitively somehow. Uh, and snails also are slow, which was emphasized by that. We watched some movie called turbo or something with a fast yeah, yeah. snail that, yeah. With rock jetpacks. Yeah. We're yeah. not going to go too much longer here, but I wanted to mention that you thought, you know, oh, look, immediately I build this website and cl- the first thing a client types into it is zero, 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 you know, like, oh, come on, you know, breaking my crap day one. There's an Ahmad Shahid article who's just a MVP CSS blogger this year for sure. We're hitting all the, the faves here published recently called Defensive CSS, which I think is just great. This is the kind, he does these kind of like, you know, how to think about CSS posts that I'm just all envy all the time because that that's what that's what I want to write about CSS. This is what this is what it feels like to work on CSS as a developer, you know, but it's hard to kind of articulate mm-hmm. uh, and it's great. And so, you know, it's easy to focus on one thing like, oh, you should use um, whatever that line is, overflow wrap, break, overflow break wrap. <laughs> you can never remember them. They're so hard. To yeah, remember. yeah, yeah. But that's one tiny example of of essentially being defensive with your CSS, right? Because a client's going to type the thing, and if you don't do it, it can literally break the layout of the entire website. It could cause your sidebar to drop or who, any kind of number of, of weird things. That's one thing. But how do you think about all those things? You know, how do you think about working in that way where it gets there. And so it's nice to have a bunch of strategies and then eventually kind of flip your brain so that you're, you kind of always work in that way. And I think that's the end goal, you know, is to be, if you're kind of like a front end developer, but focused on CSS, that defensive CSS is kind of like 
your day-to-day strategy. Like you always think in that way. What could go wrong with this button? What could go wrong with this card? What could go wrong with this avatar? What could go wrong if there's no content or too much content or all the possible things that could go wrong? And then and then it, it turns out there's about, you know, two dozen strategies for all that stuff. And it's a pretty good post in that way. That's cool. I mean, you kind of run the risk of Yagni. Is that it? You ain't going to need it, Yagni. But, um, but then again, you know, like if you've done it like a few times, like, and you just keep hitting these weird roadblocks, you know, it's worth, uh, doing defensive. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it reminds me of that thinking at yet another Jeremy Keach thing. He published an article the other day. It was like ostensibly about logical properties and how like the more you use something like that, your brain flips, you know, like let's say you were, you know, learning Spanish or whatever. You struggle, you struggle, you finally get it. Then you're fluent in it to some degree. And then you kind of start thinking in it or maybe dreaming in it, you know, Mm -hmm. that it's Mm like flip that can be like that with syntax type things, too, is that. You stop thinking in margin bottom and you start thinking in block end, you know, or whatever yeah. that, 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 that can switch. And then he was like, well, it's a little unfortunate at the moment because if your brain flips that way, there's all kinds of properties that aren't done yet. Not all kinds, but some like overflow X, there's no Chrome or Safari version of that in a logical property. Oh. It should be overflow block. So how do you, what are the situations where, oops, surprise, it doesn't work, you know? Yeah, and one so. of them was almost going to be container queries because a container query says at container min width, mm-hmm. 300, mm-hmm. but it's not width, it's inline size. You know, if you're trying to really switch all the way and flip your brain and think in the new CSS, it's not width anymore, it's inline size. Uh, but I think he was just wrong, and that I looked at the spec now, and the container queries support inline size, so I think it's hmm. not a problem, but maybe was a problem for a minute, and they fixed it at the last mile, but it also supports width two, so I was a little, like, I don't know, maybe we should just switch if we're going to switch, you know? Yeah, yeah. Why support both? You know, I think it's going to get weird here in the next, I'll save my predictions for the next episode, but mm. I think it's going to get weird here in a bit. Um, with like what works and what doesn't. And this is just like a good example. It's like some of the logical properties are out or whatever, and some aren't. And But then I'm trying to think of like other situations where, you know, I, you and I, we stay on top of CSS all the time, you know? And so, but man, sometimes I don't know when a CSS is out yet or something like that. Like I've heard of it and I know about it, but I actually don't know if it's out or if I can use it or if I can. So, mm-hmm. um, it is going to get weird. I always I thought that with, yeah, I'll save predictions next time too, but it, it feels like because there's so much CSS syntactical innovation changing, cascade layers, container queries, all that type of stuff, it's starting to be like those things are pretty hard to express in utility classes that maybe there'll be a little bit of a decline in them just because it's like, my God, you know? Well, and you know, somebody made the good point. Um, this is in one of the chat rooms we're in. I don't know if it's the Discord or not, but like, CSS is so good right now. <laughs> and so like it's it's a lot easier to learn. The the tools are great. We have actual layout tools like most stuff is very uh, intelligent and appropriately named like so I think there's like a lot of like I don't know. We're we're in a good situation with CSS. So 
and it's only going to get better, uh, if not weird for a bit, but it'll get better here as we go. So, yep. All right, man. Thanks All for right. the chat. <laughs> Okie dokie. See you next time. Thanks, dear listener, for downloading this and your podcast. Your choice. Be sure to start our favorite up. Uh, that's how people find out about the show. Follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show for tens of tweets a month. And uh, join the Patreon, the Discord over at patreon.com slash Shop Talk Show. Uh, we'd love to have you. And Chris, do you have anything else you'd like to say? Yeah, it only costs about as much money as you'll get in your stocking because. This is the last Shop Talk show of the year. Happy New Year to you. Old Lang CSS. Sine <laughs> wave. I don't know what I'm talking about. Bye-bye. ShopTalkShow.com. <laughs>